All right, Circles Q&A time. Okay, so I posted a picture on Instagram that said, all right, guys, I got a six-hour drive ahead of me today. What do you want to know about starting running a sample company? Got a bunch of good questions. My plan was to do this in the car. I couldn't do it. I was going to die. I couldn't answer things. I was focused on driving. It was a bad idea. I fucked up. But I'm doing it now. I'm in a safe place, and I'm going to respond to all these questions. So in 20 minutes, Tyler Lindgren, the other guy here at Circles who engineers some of the libraries, including Dead 1975, is going to call me, and we're going to go over some of these technical questions we got, just to make sure I get everything correct. He's got a much better uh, memory than I do. So I'm going to respond to all the other stuff now, and then we're going to get into the technical shit in about 20 minutes. I'll add timestamps to this podcast so you don't have to listen to all the bullshit you don't want to. So let's jump right in. Okay. Question one. How do you guys make the bass tone for the dead songs? This is a Fender P-Bass through a UAD Marshall Bluesbreaker 1962 and a little bit of Poltec EQ. I'll cut some lows, boost some highs. That's pretty much the chain I go through most of the time. And I've got some presets that I've made for, for the Marshall Bluesbreaker amp that sound really good. It's got a really good room emulation on it, and it sounds really good on, you know, kind of like hyped driven bass stuff. I will use the UAD Fender Twin 55 Deluxe amp sometimes too. What's funny is I don't use any of the like Ampeg, UAD Ampeg stuff very much, even though that's like really good and sounds really good on bass. But for most of the, the dead songs, it's like it's really aggressive bass and it's very much like a melodic thing. It's like the bass is like equal to the drums in terms of like importance in those demos and that's just kind of how I've done it. And so I've stuck with that method. It seems to work. So yeah, um, that's the tone. Sometimes I will go through a real amp. I'll use my, uh, silver tone. I'll run the P bass through the silver tone, mic that up. But honestly, I'm so lazy sometimes where I'm just like, is it going to sound better or is it going to sound like about the same? Maybe, I don't know. So yeah, it's all in the box for, for that shit. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Um, let's move on. Uh, I honestly thought you were recording drums in a car for that close mic'd sound. We would fucking do that, wouldn't we? Circle steering wheel. Okay. Are you guys Nine Inch Nails and Queens of the Stone Age fans? What do you think? You know we are. You already know we are. <laughs> um, I'm... I am a huge Queens of Stone Age fan, and I know everybody probably knows that, but I just grew up listening to that band, and I think the first time I ever smoked weed, I listened to songs for the deaf, and I just kind of discovered like who Dave Grohl was around that time, you know, like really, like as a drummer. Like I grew up liking Nirvana and loving Foo Fighters, but Queens of Stone Age was like a, was like a, oh my God, like what is this kind of moment? Songs for the Deaf specifically, they just, they were so weird, like just so different. And that's when like No One Knows was on the radio, but that, that whole record just, God damn, it's such a good record. That's an Eric Valentine um, engineer, didn't mix it, but engineered that record. And it was so iconic and weird and different. So that's kind of like imprinted on me. And I love a bunch of Queens records too. Loved Caius. Um, you know, them crooked vultures, but like kinda wanted to like that more and nine inch nails. Yes. Big nine inch nails fan too. You know me too well. Um, cheers from Argentina. Cheers, dude. Cheers. Aru beats. Uh, let's move on. Next question. Okay. From AV staff. AKA Adam Staffaro from, is that how you say your name? Sorry, Staffaro from Slate. What's up, dude? What records are an inspiration for some of your dead packs? 
Hmm. We bring in a lot of references. We, we used to bring in a lot of references, and I reference a lot of stuff on my own before going in to record dead stuff. Like, you know, we'll reference the, you know, the Queens of Stone Age, Death from Above, but also like heavy pop stuff. Like I'll bring in like a Marin Morris song or a, I don't know, like another, even like a Nine Inch Nails thing or um, what's another like heavy pop band? Big Data has some good, good drum sounds that we've referenced. They're just, it's kind of all over the place. Like if I hear a snare that I like in any track, I'll be like, oh, that's fucking sick or a kick or a tom. But I've found that sometimes using a track to basically like trying to get a sound can sometimes fuck up the cool thing that you were going for originally. Like you're never going to get that sound perfectly, whatever you're trying to get. And a lot of the time, I think you're better off just experimenting and getting something that's really cool without having to reference. I think referencing can kind of poison an original idea sometimes. And I used to do this in bands too, where it's like you had a cool song and you, you referenced another song's structure or melody or sonic characters. And it kind of just like, you're not going to be that. You're not that band. So why are you doing that? Why are you focusing on what that sounds like as opposed to what you can make this sound like? So that's, something to consider, something I've considered a lot more where it's like originally I did have a lot of inspiration for dead stuff and then, then I kind of stopped doing that. St. Vincent was another record we, I forget which one, but we referenced that one a lot too. I don't know, there's so many good sounding records with drums that it's, it's hard to say. I hope that was a good answer. Okay, what upcoming projects are you most excited about slash what direction do you want Circles to go in that it hasn't covered yet? Definitely got like four libraries that I want to record this year. I don't know if I'll be able to put it out because it just takes so much time to, to edit, to make a video, to make a song for, to make creative for, and I'm kind of the only one doing all that. So it, it takes a while, but I definitely want to do a 1980s thing but like a, like, a, like a truly a 1980s thing where we get like, you know, big, big room, big kid, gated reverb, seven toms, go through an SSL, into a tape machine, talk back limiter, all that shit, and just kind of, you know, blow it up. But make it, make it sound, you know, not cheesy, you know, just enough cheesy, but still really usable and fun. I want to do that. And I also want to do like a dead 1985 thing because there's a lot of like like Ramones or even some Tom Petty stuff that's really kind of like dead, like really like iconic dead, but like not great sounding, but iconic. 1980s dead shit. Like a punk 1985 would be fun. Punk dead 1985. <clears throat> also like a, a digital 1985. There's so many good drum machines from that era that we've actually already sampled. We sampled a Lindrum LM2 and an Oberheim and a Roland CR78. So yeah, there's, I wanna do that, I wanna do the 80s thing. I wanna do a Dead Volume 3. I would like to, for Dead Volume 3, to do more of like a, like a songwriter kind of pack for it where you have like a lot more loops in a, in a song format, like, have a verse, have a chorus, have a bridge, have an outro, have a bunch of fills, but in a very tight, cohesive pattern so people can make stuff a little more easy with that. Uh, I wanna do percussion stuff, I wanna do, I wanna do digital stuff if it makes sense. I would like to get more out of the rock world because we're kind of, that's kind of what we do not exclusively, but it seems like a lot of our customers are kind of those rock people, which is fine because I am too, but I would like to have more of a, more of a diverse set of sounds and samples. So yeah, that's, that's where we're headed. Kind of all over the place, to be honest. Okay, let's move on. What plans do you have coming down the line? I mean, kind of the same thing. 
more libraries, more diversity of sounds. Software is something I'm really interested in and working on. Building our own software, I mean, which we are doing. And um, I can't talk too much about that, but I'm really excited about that. There's a few questions on here. How much did you have to invest to get your business off the ground? What was the inspiration behind starting the library? I answered this in another podcast that I did about a week ago that has either been posted or is going to be posted. So for all those like starting a company type questions, I've already responded to most of those. All right, next question. Are there any plugins or creative tools in the space that you'd like to give props to or that you must own to help create? That's a really good question. Um, can be processing tools or anything just cool as fuck out there. Besides you guys, of course. Well, thank you. Thank you, Tim Pagnotta. Um, yeah, there's, God, there's so many good plugins. For virtual instruments, there's, hmm, there's a lot here. I just bought everything from Arturia, and they make such great shit. All their virtual instruments are, are banging, for the most part. Like a lot of the, the old, I mean, they're all cool. Everything from Arturia is awesome. I think they make the best virtual instruments, hands down. Another contact-based company that I really like is Teletone Audio. They make postcard piano and Golden Age Grand, Scarbo. Their shit's awesome, too. Uh, other processing stuff. I mean, I love Sound Toys stuff. I think they have, like, a real identity and character in their plugins. I wish they would put out more shit. I wish they would update their stuff. But they don't, which is equally as punk rock, I guess. <laughs> um, what else? Fab filter, of course. Um, Sooth two from Eek Sound, Oak Sound. I, I don't know how you say that. That's great. I mean, there's so many plugins. I mean, I, I use a lot of UAD stuff too. I have. I have all their shit. I use some of their virtual instruments. UAD stuff is good because you can use it. You know, with zero latency, technically near zero latency, if you use their interfaces and stuff, which I do. So that's great for writing and recalling like a, like a console, virtual console setup. Some of their plugins, somebody told me once that UAD plugins can kind of overdo it. And ever since I was told that, I kind of agree. With the tape stuff and other stuff, it kind of seems, I don't know. I'm, I'm not trying to diss them. I mean, UAD is fucking great. But some of their stuff I, I, I don't love as much as I used to. But I like a lot of their stuff, a lot. There's, there's, so, there's so many good plugins. I mean, Output is great too. Output makes some of, the, some of the best looking interfaces I've ever seen. Like Thermal, that distortion plugin is like, oh my God, where did this come from? This is insane. This is the... The most interactive, best-looking plugin I've ever seen in my life. And it sounds pretty good, too. And you can tweak a lot. I think Output's a great company. I think they're going to... I think Output as a company is going to start smashing. I mean, they already are, but I think they're just going to take over the world. Uh, yeah. To help create. Yeah. Those are some of my faves. Some of my go-tos, for sure. Let's see. How would you like to see or hear your samples used? Uh, the other day I heard circles, can't talk circles, circles, dirt samples on the show succession in the, in like the outro is like the preview for the next episode. And I was watching it on my laptop and it was like the really cool succession theme song. And then the outro was like, wait, what the fuck? How do I recognize those samples? Like I thought like my iTunes like accidentally started playing or something. Cause I was like, I've heard this. How do I know this? What is this? And I listened to it like 50 times and I was like, wait a second. Those are fucking, those are my samples. And then I, it was like midnight. No, it wasn't that late. I don't stay up that late. It was like 10 o'clock. I'm exaggerating. It was like 10 o'clock. I went downstairs in my studio, started everything up again, put the speakers on, listened to it referenced the samples in that library and I was like, oh my God, these are the same, this is Circle's Dirt on fucking Succession. I love this show. 
so that was cool. I, I'd love to see more of that. Um, there was this really famous musician that bought our sample library uh, a while back. I don't want to say who, but that was fucking cool. Everybody would know his name. Um, there have been a couple of those straggler famous people, Grammy award winning people. I'm not bragging. I'm just super stoked that have bought shit. And I'm like, oh my God, is that really them? And I look up their address and I was like, oh my God, that is them. They're living in fucking halt. They're living in Beverly Hills. Yep. That's definitely him or her. Mostly him. Uh, most of our customers are dudes. No surprise there. Let's change that if we can. Um, yeah. So yeah, how would I like to see him used? Whatever, man. Do whatever. Do cool shit. Fucking, I, I love seeing, I love when people send us uh, samples that they've used, loops they've used and stuff. Please, always feel free to send that to me. I love it. Okay, let's go. We've got a few more in here. Who mixes your full band tracks you use in your videos? This is from Glass Eye Official. What's up, Glass Eye? So I would say it's 50-50 me mixing the video tracks and Andrew Berlin mixing the video tracks. Andrew Berlin is the um, kind of the go-to mixer for all circle stuff. And he's recorded probably about half the libraries and Tyler Lindgren has recorded the other half and he's going to call me in like four minutes. But yeah, Andrew and I, actually, it's mostly me doing the mixing for the video stuff because we'll, we'll, what we'll do is we'll record a library, edit everything, bring it in, mix it, then I'll take everything back and then use those mixed samples to create a video. So most of the time it's me mixing and sometimes, sometimes I'll have Andrew do it if it just isn't good enough. Cause I get, I get, you know, I'm mixing is hard. And sometimes you need like another person to, who's actually really good at it to, to do stuff. But like for the dead 1975 dead volume one, and I think Dead volume two and other tracks, that's, that's me. Andrew might've mixed dead volume two. It's I'd say 50, 50 semantics, but me and him, me and Andrew mix those. Thank you for the question. Okay. Let's see. I just recorded my first percussion library this weekend. I am now looking for good sources on how to program a simple contact library. Do you know any good one? It seems there's not much about this. This is from Peter. Yeah. So contact is like, uh, I don't know. I kind of hate contact, man. I don't know. I had to learn this. I had to teach myself how to do it. I do all the contact programming without doing any scripting. Um, it's just contact just seems like complicated and antiquated and a lot of people use it because it's like, it's there and you can build on top of it. And if you have a developer that's used to it and use it in the past and they know what to do, they can build it really easily. And there's a lot of really good contact libraries. Um, especially for drums, like get good drums is fucking great. Honestly, no. Um, I would just, I would just find as many YouTube videos as possible to kind of deduce how to do what it is that you're doing. And if you find somebody that's really good at what they're doing, just message them and be like, Hey, can I pay you hundred bucks or thousand bucks, $10,000, build me a, build me a contact library, but you can do it on your own. There's definitely plenty of videos on YouTube to, to parse through that one. Good luck. Would love to know what you do after recording the samples in prep and what's the most important thing you've learned. We record a, make sure it sounds good. Then editing, lots of editing. Oh my God. Editing takes forever. I do all the editing at the moment because it's, there's very specific things that I feel like need to happen in the editing world, like making sure you are cutting directly at the right part of the transient, making sure everything is phase coherent, making sure the volumes are good, um, making sure the fades are good. Like here's something that I've learned. that's maybe a secret, maybe not is like 
when you're doing the sample fades for like a cymbal or a snare or something, if you do it too quick, you might not hear it in the recorded sample itself because it's just like a, you know, it's just a sample. It's not, it's not been processed yet, but if you bring that into a sampler or you bring that sample into a track and then let's say you put a distortion plug-in on it or just a compressor or a limiter or whatever, you make it louder, then you start to hear that fade more. And if it's like, if it's a symbol and it cuts out at a weird way or it cuts out abruptly, then, then you've kind of, you've kind of made that sample unusable. And I'll spend a um, ridiculous amount of time on sample fades. So that's, that's important. Editing is just really important in general. Volumes, making sure the volumes of everything are equal and sound good together. Yeah, loops. Loops are something too that I've gotten really um, obsessed about and I've definitely gotten better at where it's like loopability from like beginning to end. If you just press space bar, you loop the, you loop the loop and you make sure that it feels good while it's being looped because that's how people are going to use it. That's really important too. Not editing fully to the grid, making it still feel, feel human, but not sloppy. And that's, that's not something you can do with beat detective or, or humanizing or any of that shit. I know people use that, but I don't. I think when you use beat detective, when you use humanize, it fucks everything up. So those are the things I've learned. Is SM7B your favorite mic and how many do you own? Shout out to Matt Carter. What's up, Matt? Matt and I used to tour together back in the day. He played in a little band called Red Jumpsuit Apparatus. Uh, yes, you already know I love the SM7. I only own two, but we've used it on every library in one way or another. We were kind of doing the mono overhead thing for a while, and I insisted on it in every recording, and then it kind of got old, so now we're not really doing that anymore. I just used a SM7B on my rack tom, and it sounded fucking great. So yeah, I own two. Okay, where do you find inspiration for future projects? I just started getting into sample making and feel like I'm stuck making it up as I go and my projects get nowhere. This is from Trev Barnes. Yeah, man, I know this feeling. Getting stuck fucking sucks. <laughs> and, uh, having projects that go nowhere suck. My take is that like if, if the thing doesn't go anywhere, if it just dies on a hard drive, then it's, it's fine. It's fine to die. Let it die. It's not worth making it. If it, if it can't be revived with a revision or two, just let it die. We've let so many sample libraries die and songs personally just die. But like the good ones usually make it, you know, the cream rises to the top as they say this one, this one's hard. Um, yeah. Inspiration for future projects. I just, I love the creative process. I don't always love finishing things. Like sometimes I'll take way too long and take long breaks to do shit. But if it's worth doing, I think you'll do it. And that's, that's kind of my mantra, my unspoken mantra. Any plans on expanding beyond a standard drum kit into more exotic drums and percussion, maybe even other instruments? Yes. Uh, yes, definitely. I, I personally am pretty tired of doing just like kick, snare, tom, cymbal. If I have to sample another fucking cymbal, oh my God. Um, yeah, I know. It's my job. It's, what I, it's the life I chose, but still, it's like, I would love to do more exotic stuff. I would love to do percussion libraries. I would love to do melodic stuff too. I would love to do a bass pack, slide guitar, uh, loops and samples and instruments, even piano and I don't know, man. Once you once you unravel that, I think it can get pretty crazy. I don't want to like sample things just for the sake of sampling. I kind of want to have a diverse set of sounds that are really 
know, different and interesting to me. So yes, definitely, definitely more exotic stuff in the future. And I would love to do Dead Volume Three, Dirt Volume Two. Yeah, keep expanding on those lines. Do the '80s library, like I was talking about, that kind of stuff. What software do you use to clean up and process your recordings? Um, Isotope RX8, UAD C Suite. Yeah, those are my those are my go tos. All right, a full breakdown of the dead 1975 pack would be amazing. Tuning, signal chains, and post-processing. All right, it's time. We're calling Tyler. Hang on. Hey, what's up, man? What's up, dude? Not too much. How are you doing? Are uh, you good to go? I think I can pull up questions. Yeah, okay. I know. I'm good. Okay. Ready. Sweet. Tyler, what's up, man? How you doing? <laughs> I am well. Nice. All right, we, we got a good setup going on here. Um, okay. Let me find the most technical. There's like one super technical question I think basically is like you'll be able to answer everything in regards to dead 1975 and the recording gear we used. Oh, let's see. Okay, yeah. So this question came up like four different times in, in four, uh-huh. di- four different ways that are basically the same, which is how do you make that dry dead sound? Drum miking tips in general, signal chain, post-processing, basically any engineering secrets. Cool. <laughs> so I can, I, can, I can frame that in the, in the uh, 1975 perfect. Uh, pack or whatever. Yes. <clears throat> yeah. So... For the for the dead 1975 pack, we knew we wanted to do something that was. Uh, we weren't sure at the time if it was going to be dead volume three or dead volume something else. Um, but we the first two were recorded at the blasting room, and we wanted to do the third one at Stefan's studio. So Stefan's studio happens to have this really cool tight uh, room in the basement that he's put up all these, uh, sound blankets that completely encapsulate the room. So the room itself is incredibly dead to start with. Um, and there's not a lot of like room sound to play with, you know, really there's mostly just distance, but in that maybe, you know, 10 by 15 room or 15 by 15 room, it doesn't really, with the blankets, it's not really a room. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost like outside. Right. So, um, we knew from the earlier packs with the blasting room, kind of some of the flavors and mics that we usually use and some of the flavors of pre's that we usually use. I happen to have some of the same stuff. So, um, stuff that's pretty crucial, I guess, to most of the stuff we make, we use these really fancy, somewhat rare microphones called the Lucas CS1. That's a tube condenser that's kind of a tweak modification on a AKG C12 gone wild. So we've been fortunate enough to have a pair or two of those on every pack we've done for quite a while. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we had those. Um, and for the dead sound, <clears throat> a lot of the, the drum sound in that situation is kind of just the kit in the room and what sounds good. And then the close mics are really just flavors and transient punch enhancement at that. So we set up a couple different uh, overhead slash room pairs in which to capture the kit, which we had the pair of Lucas CS1s out front in XY. And then we had a pair of coals kind of in rear position, but super wide. And we made sure to measure the distance between the snare and the, the pair of Lucas's and the Coles to make sure that was all equidistant to create a pleasant phase relationship. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> engineering question, question mark secret <laughs> number one <laughs> yeah, is just, I guess, how important phase is, especially in this dead uh, environment because <clears throat> everything's going to be so clean. You don't really have rooms or reverbs to smear or, uh, you know, mask your original drums. Right. So phase, 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 phase. <laughs> that's the secret. Then, uh, yeah, that's the secret. Um, then I would say a lot of them, we use some kind of drum tortilla 
on the snare and the toms. Mm-hmm. You, you can tell when you listen to the packs, obviously, when we did them. Like some snares have an open sound. We try to include at least one of those, I think, in each of the deads. But a lot of them have drum tortillas or drum left so or big fat snare drum or tape socks, some some kind of something. Mm-hmm. Not to really change the the tone of the drum, but to cut down on the resonance. Yeah. And so, I feel like a lot of times we'll we'll audition a version of each of those where it's like, that sounds cool. Now try it with the tortilla. Now try it with the big right. fat snare. Now try it with a moon gel, half a moon gel, finger on the bottom, those kinds of things. Yep. Yep. And you go through every single one of those. And at some point there's a consensus between you and the room, what you're hearing and feeling and me in the control room that like, Oh, that's the, that's the sound. Yeah. And really it's, it's trying to find, cause I think, and I guess engineering question mark secret number two is mm-hmm. <laughs> when you get in a drum, like what's the objective there yeah. and for, for us, I think, in in the dead style you're not really trying to make the drums dead you're just trying to remove unpleasant things about the drums yeah that's a good way to (laughs) put it yeah so you're muffling to get rid of some of the high-end ring muffling to get rid of some of the sustain uh essentially it's just kind of what would work easier and quicker on a recording and have more mobility to add stuff uh, uh, in the box after to make it bigger, you know? Yeah. I also think having two people, having you, having me, and sometimes having Andrew to like all come to that consensus is part of the right. magic too, where it's like, if two people think this is the best version of that snare drum, then it probably is. Right. And then we always roll with what the, you know, the city council of Sample Town <laughs> ends up ruling for the day. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, yeah, and then the, the the differences I would say between, well, maybe I'll, I'll roll back a little bit. Some of the other stuff that we like to use a lot, um, preamps, I know someone asked about. Mm-hmm. Um, us and the Blasting Room, or myself and the Blasting Room, are big fans of these classic audio products of Illinois or Cappy uh, VP28s. Uh, they're 500 series preamp. I have 10 and I think the blasting room has like some 40 or some crazy number like that. Yeah. But they're, they're essentially a API clone that has a preamp gain like the API pre's, but it also includes uh, a fader gain. So it's two, two stages of uh, level on the same, card instead of one so what that what that gives you is the ability to saturate the preamp to where it's compressing and doing a little bit of the distortion and depending on which op amp or operational amp you're using it'll have a slightly different harmonic structure and kind of eq curve to it so with dead 1975 i pushed a lot of the direct mics pretty hard on the preamp stage and then use the fader stage to get them into the box at the most healthy and clean level. So when you look at the wave files of the session from Dead 1975, a lot of the close mics are squared off almost with a bit of a transient bump right at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that type of saturation was a huge piece of that sound yeah so how would you how would you describe the differences between like a dead volume 2 and a dead 1975 in terms of sonic characteristics and and in in like recording yeah i think for dead 2 and uh for dead 2 we were there was a little bit less of that distortion and pushing stuff yeah a little cleaner i think a little cleaner yeah a little bit more uh yeah less compressed less saturated with 75 with kind of the the feel and tone of the drums they sounded and felt best when pushed a tiny bit yeah um another difference too is we had several lo-fi mics which we like to do on just about everything as well mm-hmm. i think we had one one in volume two that was the web core but i don't think we ended up mm-hmm. using it but i think you're right yeah 
Yeah, but on uh, 75, we had a carbon phone that we used on the snare top. Mm-hmm. And we had a, uh, oh, geez, yeah, the web core underneath the throne. So oh, that's right. two, two, two mics that have very band-passed frequency responses and borderline distort quickly. <laughs> and, yeah, right. And also the, uh, the, uh, the radio with the binaural head. Right, right. That was that was a huge difference, I suppose, to uh, Dead Two. We didn't do any of that kind of stuff. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. So you have you you have that cool radio that has the fold out speakers. It's like a stereo, proper stereo, you know. And then uh, I made a couple of these binaural mic heads. So we threw one in the midst of that, and actually, while recording. You also have the AM radio transmitter. Mm. So we transmitted what we were tracking through the air, which, you know, however many feet that is, whatever. Right. <laughs> enough. <laughs> Ten and, feet. And enough. It, exactly. And then uh, recorded the output of the radios, which was a cool color in several of the kits. Yeah. Yeah, that was cool. I remember uh, thinking when we were recording it that it was it was in the room next door and it was like really loud and I was like is that coming through it's like it's like bumping over there this right. <laughs> 1960s radio it definitely was a vibe yeah and I think that the first time we did that was with uh, the buffalo pack that's right so it was it was fun to bring some of those uh, outside elements inside into the the dead you know which is normally a clean sterile kind of uh, ecosystem yeah having some weird fuckery going on in the other yeah, room indeed. was different <laughs> so it's kind of which kind of i guess makes sense with the whole 75 thing like you know someone's yeah you're trying to do something and someone's like older sibling is blasting the stereo from <laughs> the other room you know <laughs> that's true that's a good way to look at it yeah. I remember thinking, I guess it could be any decade. yeah, like what you said when it was going to be dead volume three and then upon revisiting these sessions being like, this is not, this is not a continuation. This is kind of its own thing. And I think those extra mics, those, those kind of, uh, the weirdo mics, the web core, the binaural radio and, and sort of what you were talking about with using the VP 28s to kind of push things enough, you know, to make it sound Mm-hmm. kind of Queens of Stone Age or whatever. But, and also mm-hmm. that room, which was very kind of DIY, these vocal booths to go, acoustic blankets covering every surface. It definitely had its own character. Somebody was like, is this the love child of tape and dead volume two? <laughs> I was like, it exactly yeah. is that. <laughs> right. Totally. And it's, it's, it's interesting too, because the, the, just the whole dead thing, like I think, when I even first kind of thought of it, uh, conceptually, not, not as what we're doing, but just like dead drum sounds, Mm -hmm. I felt like it was kind of a limiting concept, you know, Mm. like you set up your kit and it just sounds really dry because there's no room. But now kind of after we've done these three volumes and some of the outside stuff where the close mics sound more dead than dead. Yeah. Um, it's, it's really crazy just how many, different styles and intricacies and decades and inspirations you can do with it without reverb and without room sounds. It's wild. It is wild. It's kind of a side effect I didn't think about at first is real is realizing how many ways you can take those sounds like beyond, beyond what I can do as a, as like a producer where I'm like, okay, that's cool. It's dead. Like I'll make like a fucking rock song out of it. But then you have all these pop people and all these hip hop people, and right. whatever, everybody wants the dead thing because you can take it and you can do whatever you want with it. It's like a, it's like Play-Doh of samples. Totally. Right. So here's a question. Uh-huh. And this is my, my question, but also a version of some of the other, um, questions on, on Instagram of like, if you, if somebody was wanting to record drums and they wanted to get that dead sound or they wanted to make their own dead sample library, what would you tell them to do on a very modest budget? The, the most modest budget, most bang for your buck dead recording. Yeah, I would. I mean, you could pull off a really nice dead recording with three 
three or four inputs realistically. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I said earlier, I think the most important thing is finding a space in which to put the drum kit where it does sound dead, but it doesn't sound like there's literally no life. Yeah. So if you can find a really nice room and, and get some kind of treatment going, mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be fancy. You don't have to eat eggs for two years and cover all the walls and egg cartons or like, <laughs> right. you know, steal the, the, like the apple padding outside of the back of whole foods <laughs> that they throw yeah. away after shipping stuff. Like you don't need to do that, but mm-hmm. if you have an extra mattress laying around or something, maybe throw it up on one wall to mm-hmm. heat up some of those gnarly reflections. And I think having, uh, some mic or stereo pair of mics in a place in the room that captures how good the drum sound is to you in the room mm-hmm. and trans translates through the recording. Great. Uh, as far as like preamps and all that stuff goes, I don't think that really, really, really matters. Mm-hmm. If you have more options to like color stuff or saturate stuff, great, but it's not necessary. I think you can do a lot of that with how you treat your drums with dampening and what sticks you use and how hard you're playing. So, so having that preamps are, and then having, or go ahead. Preamps but, are less, less crucial than maybe people would think. Yes. Yes. Mics and even more important mic placement and even more important than that, the drums, how they're tuned and treated and even more important than that, how you're playing in the room that you're in. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so it's it's really like all that subtlety to go into, you know, simple. It's it's it it sounds a lot more detailed than it really is. It's just really trying to capture the right thing in the room the right way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess the only other technical detail that I could add to that is the correct placement and choice of a couple close mics because part of the dead sound that we use and love so much is that they are so punchy uh and a lot of that punch often comes from the close mics mixed with the overhead or overall room mics yeah which i think a lot of people think it's mostly the close mics but oftentimes not right um and then some if you have this plug-in or some kind of plug-in, the transient designer, that sure helps on that end. But really, it's just three, four mics put in the right spot, treated in the right room the right way, and that's about it, you know? It's not crazy. Uh, it's not, yeah, it's not crazy. The I guess the one other little intricacy, or maybe this is my second one other or third one other, but <laughs> <laughs> that I would add is... Uh, there's there in in the dead room depending on your symbol and drum and drum head choice there is a a big potential for the piercing harshness of the high end to be highlighted mm-hmm. so uh advice in drum choice and symbols is find find drums and put heads on them and tune them in a way that's pleasant and doesn't hurt or create harshness or make you want to plug your ears too much. Yes. Agreed. And I think a lot of it like is really important that it sounds good from the start without any processing. Right. And that may be obvious to most people that have ever recorded, but it is something to remind yourself of constantly. It's where it's like, let's not fix this in the mix. Let's make sure this sounds basically like if we turn it up, it sounds good enough to put out, like almost good enough to put out, I think is a really good place to be. Agreed. Try not to fix it in the mix, just enhance it. <laughs> yes. So on so, on those lines, there was a, a uh-huh. few questions about post-processing, so uh-huh. mixing. Um, uh-huh. And Andrew has done, has mixed all, Andrew Berlin at the Blasting Room has mixed all three dead libraries. Right. And But we've kind of sat on the couch and watched him do it. Um, mm-hmm. And I think you might be a little more uniquely equipped to explain sort of his process, translate his process if, if he'll allow us to do that. Yeah. What I've, I love watching. So first Andrew's the sweetest, most talented 
individual I have met in a long time. Agreed. <laughs> Last of the nice guys. Uh, Last of the nice guys. Agreed. I think that's what Bill and Stevenson said about him. That's awesome. And he is incredibly talented and incre- incredibly humble about what he does. So it's fun, fun to just sit there and watch him work. But oftentimes he when we bring in files or when he's tracked stuff there for the dead libraries and we go into mix phase, we're looking for combinations of mics that we tracked that are going to be pleasing. That's generally the first thing. So, you know, if we set up 10 mics, maybe we're using three at the end because we checked out a bunch of different blends. Maybe we are using five mics. So sometimes even one, you know? Yeah. Sometimes it's even one. True. Uh, so we find that and then enhance what we need to enhance based on kind of what we can all feel where it needs to go. So he'll, you know, hypothetically let's, I can't remember which dead 1975 kit, but hypothetically, you know, he pulls up two kick drum mics really likes one and feels like he can get everything done with that one compares it finds like the overhead pair that's right finds the snare that's right maybe not maybe ditches it eventually Mm -hmm. uh finds the weird effects and then oftentimes it's fab filter pro q3 that we use all the time yeah (laughs) just to kind of tame some stuff Mm -hmm. and then um from there there's some outboard processing that sometimes happens with transient designers or um for tom sometimes we use these Aphex big bottom processors that they Mm -hmm. have at the blasting room Mm -hmm. i think we use those on the 75 toms if i remember correctly didn't just like unfair child didn't we use unfair child on like a stereo print or something yep we did a parallel compress with the unfair child Mm -hmm. which is always fun to get some very new tube glue on there. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's really just combining. He really just finds the flavors, treats them accordingly. So they're all playing as best they can together. And that's really it. <laughs> it yeah. sounds a lot more simple, you know, in a two minute blurb <laughs> than it is. Cause there's, there's so much detail into each one of these processes, but yeah, um, but it, there is something the runway. Yeah, like, you know? yeah. Basically, what you're distilling the mixing process to is like having ten to sixteen sources mics and yep. blending them accordingly. Turning one up, down, see if it works. Turning another one up, down. Checking phase, checking EQ, and just kind of tweaking until it feels right and it feels really good. Yep. Exactly. And then from there, we don't really do, I don't know if it's just how we all like stuff to sound or if we have similar philosophies about level or whatever, Mm -hmm. but generally speaking, stuff, stuff is pretty standardized level without us trying to do too much to it at the end. Yeah. You know, there's not really like a, you know, there'll be a, a few plugins on the master bus and maybe printing through a couple pieces of outboard. Mm-hmm. But, um, as far as like level matching or mastering any of the samples, there's really no post post done. The mixes are the final, which I think is really good because, uh, you know, the mix light even, mm-hmm. uh, is what you would want your drums to be so that you can mold them into what you'd like them to be. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of a weird thing. Cause you're, you're mixing into this Goldilocks zone of like, not fully mixed, but not, not mixed. Cause you want people to add their 30% to it, their processing, right. their version of what they wanted to sound like. So a lot of that is not making it too loud, not compressing it to death. And sometimes people don't like that because I think a lot of samples are overprocessed and sound good on their own and people just want to roll with it. So it's kind of right. a it's kind of a different thing to get used to, but I also think that's where its charm is and that it's not overprocessed and, and hyper usable. Right. And that's definitely something that we that's probably the most fussy part of the mixing process for us, I guess, mm-hmm. is making sure that once, you know, we pretty much mix on the loops first and then go into detail on the samples. Mm -hmm. So, you know, but there might be velocities 
like low or high velocities that don't work with a certain setup, but the middle chunk works great. So yeah. we'll have to automate the lanes to do the level correctly to that stuff. So it actually sounds good. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up in mixing. Cause what we'll do when we record is usually go in and mix or record drum loops first. It'll be me uh-huh. and me in a room playing and kind of getting, getting the vibe right, getting the levels right. And then when we go into mix, it's mixing those loops. And then we, the samples are usually post that in a session. So they're kind of already mixed and they're mixed in a way right. that's in a cohesive kit form. So we're not just going in and making the kick sound like a monster kick. It's like, no, it's, right. it's mixed for, uh, to be used in, you know, a kit setting. So I think that adds some coherence to, to all the samples as well. Totally. I think, yeah, that's a great, that's a great point. Like every, every session I've done on my own that I've just done samples, it is extremely difficult to mix correctly because there's no context within a drum kit. Yeah. So I would also recommend if you're going to track your own drum library or dead sounds or dead samples, record some beats too and mix that and then nuance your samples. Otherwise you're going to mix the, mix the sources jacked. And they will sound like borderline, I don't know if I want to call it like sampled or digital or whatever, but they just won't sound right. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So it's funny in saying that I didn't even realize that we kind that we do that. (laughs) You know, I just like take it for granted that that's our process. And I'm like, oh yeah, that's really cool that we do that. (laughs) Uh That's always the fun about like talking about this is like you, we, we discover what, uh, what we do. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yep. Um, I think the the only other, the only other thing I would add as far as like mixing, mixing the drum, dead drum samples Mm -hmm. is we don't, I personally don't go into it with the mentality of dead drum samples. It's not like, you know, like we set up the kit to be dead drum samples and once it's tracked, it is dead. Mm-hmm. So I, I, it's not about mixing it to make it dead. It's about mixing it to sound good because it's already dead. I like that. That's a really good way to put yep. it. Not For trying, sure. not trying to overdo the dead thing. Uh huh. There's one part of a question in here that I wanted to ask you, and this can be, this can be, I think the final question, cause I think you did a really great job of, um, explaining everything, especially for dead 1975. But this last one is basically like must own tools for processing. And I guess we'll keep this specifically to drums, but if you had uh-huh. to advise somebody and they're like, what, maybe, maybe this is a two part thing, like both software and also hardware. Uh huh. If you had to tell somebody we, what to should get. both answer it. Okay. I, I'm sure that people would, different people would gain value out of each of our different answers. Fair you know? enough. Fair <laughs> enough. You go first. Yeah. Um, for me personally, uh, it goes back to that whole kind of chain I, I communicated earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, I, as I built my studio, I bought nicer drums first and then fixed them and then bought nicer heads and then bought nicer cymbals and really got that dialed. Yeah. So, that then um, must have for processing hardware and stuff. So I, like I said, I really like those Cappy VP28s. If you have budget to have a few of those, I think those are um, incredibly nice going in. On the mic end, man. The Lucas's is such a spoiled answer, but it's true. They're so good. Um, they're so good. But I think having having a really nice stereo pair of mics that you can really trust where you put them. Yeah. In a way, like sonically, I think is really important. Um, if you you know again have budget to have multiple, that's great. I love Cole's forty thirty eights. I love the Lucas's. Um, I recently got hip and obsessed with Bayer Dynamic M88s on Toms. Mm-hmm. They work amazing on other stuff too. Um, I'm personally, I have a Heiserman H47. I used to have a U47 FET, both FET U47s I really like. 
that on a kick out, but that's not, I guess, like indispensable, you know? Sure. Um, as far as processing goes, um, Fab Filter Pro Q3, <laughs> um, Soothe. Yep. I think it's Oak Sound, or Oak, I don't know how to say it right, but Oak Sound Soothe 2 mm-hmm. is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, a transient designer, whether it's the SPL, the hardware SPL 4, um, or it's, you know, the Native Instruments 1, or the SPL 1, or the Brainworks 1, or the whoever, you know, yeah. some kind of transient designer. Yeah. We use Devil Lock like it's going out of style. Uh, we have a bit of a sure level lock whole thing going on over here. It's a bit obsession, yeah. It's a bit of a thing. I, I don't know if I would put that on the essentials, but if you can get a modded sure mixer from the 70s that has that limiter in it, that's yeah. a very useful tool to have. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, Man, I'd say that's about like the the must haves. Yeah, a long version of the must haves. <laughs> Dude, I have I have nothing to add to that. I, I think those are all all the best ones. And actually, I responded to this question earlier, and that's basically uh-huh. exactly what I said too. <laughs> Aside, I forgot I forgot the uh, the SPL transient designer, which I use a lot, and I'm starting to use a lot more. I use the UAD nice. SPL transient designer. And it's just, it's, it gives you exactly what you need for drums, the punchiness, the sustain. Yep. It's so easy and it sounds really good. I, I think yep. that's a really good one to have for drums. I think that's like, I would say that's probably the most valuable, like maybe some people don't know about it piece of processing yep. that to get your hands on some yep. kind of transient designer. Even if it only has the attack and sustain, it's still incredibly useful in in the dead context and and not yes. can be used as a gate can be used as an expander compressor it's, it's a, and it does it just a little bit differently than a compressor would do it right which is great i agree that's a that's a really good one the only thing i would yeah. maybe add to the list is you know a black beauty for how tired of them that we are i think is kind of the perfect all around most versatile snare drum you could buy Black Beauty or an Acrolyte, I think we use on every recording. Correct. <laughs> the other one, the one that we used on 1975, though, that has is replaced my love for the Black Beauty, like in, almost entirely, mm-hmm. um, is that Keplinger Black Iron snare. Yeah. yeah, that one's great. That thing, though, that thing slays. Yeah. Like, oh man. So yeah, the Black Beauty and the Acro though are like a must. Mm-hmm. And then. Um, you know, if you really want to go down the rabbit hole, the uh, you can get an early '70s, late '60s Ludwig or Rogers kit. Mm-hmm. That seems to be the flavor flavor of uh, circles, city council of late. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sprinkle a few Yamaha drums in there and some other random snares. You got it. Exactly. <laughs> That's the recipe. Do what you will with it. That's right. <laughs> well, now that we've given away all of our trade secrets. <laughs> Right. What, what's the next thing we're going to do? Actually, that is a question. So the last thing I'll ask you, and then I'll let you go, is yeah. um, somebody, I responded to this already, but I'd like to hear your perspective uh-huh. on it, which is what upcoming projects are you most excited about and what direction do you want Circles to go in that it hasn't covered? <laughs> yeah, well, I, without, I can say things without saying too much. There's a, a very... Uh, detailed and distinct answer to that question <laughs> coming to a theater near you. you Indeed, know? <laughs> yes. Um, so as far as I think what we're looking for is we always love making what we make because we actually believe in it. So I know we'll continue to do making packs and expanding on creatively what that is. Yeah. Um, whether that, you know, continuing the dead series, continuing a couple of our other series, maybe doing some new stuff, um, plus this other new project. Um, and then I think the other thing that we're investigating is, um, expanding what we offer and what we do to provide our end users more flexibility, Mm-hmm. in how they're able to use our stuff. 
Um, Seems like a very business response. Yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It's hard. We're kind of beating around the bush with one big thing we got in the works, but yeah, it's yep. <laughs> I get where you're coming yep. from. Yep, yep. Like cool. uh, like what packs? Like if you if you had like a dream pack, like I talked about the the eighties stuff that I think could be really cool. Oh, right, right. So I have I have one one thing I've been cooking up in my head, which you actually kicked off via friend Jakob of a mutual friend of ours that uh, he sent this listing on reverb for the circuit bent mm. HR 16 Alesis drum machine. So I, Stefan texted me that I fucking bought it that <laughs> second <laughs> and then proceeded to buy all the chips to get all the sounds in it and, you know, all that stuff. So, so dope. we've tracked it. We've tracked it a couple times for different, different things, but it hasn't been on a release yet, mm-hmm. but part of what's cool about it is it's circuit bent. So it has all these just fucked up, crazy distorted sounds done in a way that only circuit bending does. Yeah. So I, I would like to do uh, circles bent where we use the drum machine for some of the stuff. I want to hook up a hybrid drum kit. Mm-hmm. So like digital snare running MIDI into the drum machine mm. and then a real snare drum and like mic the room, but also track the MIDI through the drum machine Yeah, and then yeah. be able to hybridize some of those sounds and then use some more, some more esoteric um, pedals and effects to get that distortion color. Cause in a lot of our packs, like dirt tape, you know, we, we kind of pick a color, not intentionally, but there's a there's a color or a spirit to it, I would say. Yeah. And the the digital fucked up distortion isn't necessarily a color we've gone to yet. And we've always done a good job about making things palatable. Yeah. <laughs> I think we could totally <laughs> do that with those sounds and uh, do something fresh and weird, but I still agree. like bumping. It's bumping, yeah. My uh, my point that I talked about earlier was recording these digital drum machines like the Lindrum or the Oberheim. And now I just bought a Mm. Roland CR 78 and wanting to do that and also starting to do that, but also trying to figure out what the angle is for, For for circles. It's like, I think that's the biggest thing. And the hardest thing is, you know, sometimes we'll do libraries that just, live on a hard drive for a couple of years and uh-huh. maybe die on a hard drive and maybe they should, uh-huh. but, uh-huh. um, <laughs> sometimes they get resurrected. And I think if there's like, oftentimes if there's inspiration in one way or another where it's like, Oh fuck, I figured out the, the Lindrum angle or I figured out the digital angle or the hybrid right. kit angle or the marching drum angle or so, whatever it is. Like once that sort of, you know, coalesces into something that's like, Oh, okay, we got something here. Let's go with it then it's worth doing. But you kind of have to experiment with stuff first and and go crazy and see where you can go to know if it's worth going to. Right. It's been it's been interesting because some of them some of the packs like we've made, we don't know what it is when we finished recording them. <laughs> exactly, yeah. It's like what's the point of even naming things anymore? Exactly, you know. So you set out with an intention and then it can become something completely different you know which i i've actually really enjoyed those kind of deviations in this so like you know but even with the 1975 stuff like that that drawn out paper setup that i sent you before we even tracked is really really close to what we ended up doing like super super close but it didn't end up being what we thought it was going to be right again which is awesome (laughs) yeah exactly so weird Uh so funny how that happens 80, I am excited about 85 too. Me too. I, I'm geeking on the, the equipment that I have seen that may be in existence in your possession. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, um, I have this, I mean, the 80s thing will be super fun, especially this kit yeah. I just bought from the, it's a, technically a 1979, but it's a fucking 1980s kit. It's all white, this Yamaha, yep. seven toms, <laughs> no, no, tom, uh, no bottom heads. It's just, it's just so 80s. It's going to be so fun. But Perfect. along those same lines, I, I think about like, and I think we've touched on this before. It's like we've done 1975. It's not really a 70s library, but 1985 I think will be and then it's like well let's do 1925 or let's do 1965 Uh 
and then it then it starts to get crazy. Yep. Which I am I am on a like a hypothetical level. I'm so excited for every single one of those. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. It will be definitely. I mean, we'll have to figure out like. I think you're right that 25 is probably the furthest back we could possibly go. Yeah, even that's pushing you know, with it, right? it. Even yeah, even that's pushing it. We'd have to probably get some kind of wax cylinder shit going on. <laughs> you right. know, or mono mono blade cut vibe or Holy something. I don't fuck. even know. Yeah. I would actually have to research like what what did people really have access to as far as recorded music in the 1920s? God, good question. I don't even think there was. Like maybe there was talkies, so maybe they were starting to do tape. Mm. I know they had the wax cylinders, but I don't know what kind of vinyl they had back then. God, I wonder how expensive it would be to do it all authentically with all 1920s mics, drum sets, whatever we're recording to. That would be crazy. It'd be so fun. It'd be really crazy. The hardest, it would probably be like, most of it would be easy. Mm -hmm. And then there would be a couple things that were an absolute nightmare to figure out. Yeah. Like 1920s is like, cool, we could find some functioning mics. They might not be like the nicest ones from back then, but as long as they still work. Right. And then once we get out of that early era, we'd be fine as far as the decades go. Mm -hmm. But the the recorders would be brutal (laughs) (laughs) like brutal because we would be going direct to disc for the first probably five i think five (laughs) decades or at least four and then like even in that like what what lathe do you have and oh my god that's like some like you know circles trademark gets bought out for some geospace company or aerospace company and for like a billion dollars and then we decide to do shit like then that. we can afford to do it yeah. <laughs> yeah and hire people to help us do it because holy shit right. that sounds like way too right. much work uh-huh yeah that's yeah. crazy but yeah i'm excited for those uh those yamaha toms it'll be fun to set up in a bunch of different ways i don't know how you have it like going in your head right now but mm. you got to set them all up at least once of course definitely oh yeah 100 <laughs> percent. awesome i want to i want to commit we'll... to just having them all set up all the time that's the kit <laughs> period great dude that's awesome maybe we'll have to man i wish it wouldn't work for the for the thing but since I have all the the Rogers toms, we could do two two monster tom kit oh, versions. But the black kit and the white kit too. That's that's right, but that wouldn't necessarily make sense. But no, it wouldn't. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but it would be fun. It'd be stupid. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>